Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Stop dying, Charles. That's what we want people to do. <laughs> yes, sir. That's our whole message. That the rest is. of it's just fill in the blanks. So it's Bob and Chuck and Don't Die, Mike behind the board. And, and Mike. It's, Hi. it's MLK Day. We're taping on MLK Day. ML, MLKJR. Yeah, MLKJR. You know, I, I heard today that his name was Michael, but they went with Martin because it sounded more... Like, like uh, Martin Luther. I heard that the very stable genius is going to overturn MLK Day. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he is. Uh-uh, we don't do that here. <laughs> the very stable genius of which He doesn't I'm, know what a very stable genius is when he comes out of the gate with well, it. Well, I'm wearing a I very just, stable genius shirt. I say shirt. we don't say the name anymore. We just say very stable genius. The very genius. stable genius. Or exactly. the VSG. The, the, no, you have to say it. It just has uh, such a... I have, ladies and gentlemen at home, you can't know, but I... Whenever something cool comes along, I put it on a shirt because there's a shirt thing right down the street where the guy will just do anything on a shirt. <laughs> okay. I love the guy. He'll put Cookie Monster on there. He'll put pic family pictures on a shirt and he'll have it ready in like four hours and it's so cool. So immediately when our when 45 uh, claimed to be a very stable genius, I had very stable genius shirts made up. And I'm For wearing the whole family, right though. Now. The baby has one. Yeah, I saw Sid had hers first. <laughs> I thought that that's cool. <laughs> We're two years old wearing a very stable genius shirt. But the 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 thing I was going to say is that uh, you know we don't want we want to kind of educate the public on don't die. We also want to educate the public on rehab. Want to educate the public on insurance. Want to educate the public on what the hell has gone on. What is rehab anymore? And so this podcast is kind of an education thing to reach out to other. Uh, you know, disillusioned treatment professionals that have, that have, I know they're in number in the thousands across the United States, especially in Florida mm -hmm. and here in Southern California. And an interesting thing happened today. So, so I have a lead on, I'm not, I, I'm going to talk in a general way so that the, but you can get the gist of it. So insurance companies sometimes decide not to pay for just no reason. Right. This is another thing that people don't factor in the cost of rehab. And then all of a sudden you have 10 or 12, 14 clients and then you build insurance. And then they just said, we're not going to pay you. Right. It's the, common. It's been going on. I've been doing this 20 years. It's common. Every health insurance provider, except for Aetna, has done it at one time or another. And I don't it doesn't bother me. It's just such a it's such a norm. Right. I, I always have been under the under the kind of guides like that insurance pays for treatment is amazing and you know i'm just always shocked and surprised they pay not when they don't pay <laughs> right because that's i'm old school i come from the 90s and they didn't pay so so i got a, a lead on how to get paid on this one thing and immediately i thought i want to share this with my friends that I love that have been doing this forever, I called my friend Tim Chapman that you work for. Yep. And I said, hey, how much does so-and-so owe you? And he told me, and I'm going to try to get him his money. And that's what the recovery community and the recovery industry needs to do instead of be so competitive and so cutthroat and steal clients from other rehabs because they can make money. You know, that, that community-based thing is what I think a lot of counselors and therapists and techs and sober people who've been in the recovery industry for decades love about the industry. Scholarships and helping each other. And, and you know, I, I, I did it for a decade, like back and forth. I didn't care. I was going to get paid. I was going to make a living. It wasn't about becoming a millionaire. It became about, it became about becoming a millionaire ironically through the most altruistic laws that america i think has ever created which is obamacare and the parity act right right, right that's right, what right, created right. the cesspool that our industry is well uh, the people that came into the industry because of that door open more specifically like the law itself wasn't bad it was the people that attracted I agree 100%. And reciprocity, having I love having people. We have several places that we can send our people to and that they send their people to when they're having problems. Or when you have 
um, boys and, and girls and that need to be split up. And you know, what? and it's okay. We don't keep track and say we've sent you five. We need five back. But you have to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, especially with psych, because so many of the kids coming in are psych, co co-occurring psych, primary psych. You have to have what what the business guys because i play both sides of the fence i'm the rehab guy and i know the, all the business people what the business people call it check do you know what they call that a strategic partnership no way <laughs> yes. no i call, call it i got a buddy <laughs> i got a buddy who runs a good rehab <laughs> yep. who you know so anyways so i like that treatment professionals listen i like i thought moms and dads would listen but i don't think they are judging by the emails it's mostly treatment professionals, which that's all right. We're the ones that educate the moms and dads anyways. I know right? Kyle's mom, Lisa, listens. Some, some moms <laughs> listen. But for the most part, it's treatment professionals because I went back through and looked. And hey, you know, spread the word. We're, I know everybody always just needs a, uh, like somebody to say it. And I said it like four years ago to Evan, my, my partner out there in Malibu. And I said, you know what? We need to... to educate this population that's going to go back to using the high risk that using is i'm not i don't want to scare people straight i just want to educate them that there's fentanyl in the dope you got to be very careful don't shoot dope don't be ashamed don't feel bad because you're 20 years old and you're not catching on to sobriety don't go kill yourself don't go feel ashamed you know be careful and i started saying that four years ago and we had we had you know, before it was legal in California, had those Narcan things. I was giving them out to kids. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> but, but the thing is, this one kid said it to me. I said, here, I want you to have this. And I gave it to him. This is at my sober living in Hollywood, right? He was okay. leaving. He ended up passing away. So sad. No way. Like I knew yep. it was going to happen. So I give him this thing as he's leaving because he's telling me, fuck you. He's going to this fancy rehab. That I was trying to get him to go to cry help. And he went to another one of the fly-by-night ones, right? So, so as he's leaving, and I've been a dad to this guy. You know how I am with these kids. Yep. So I give him the Naltrex, the, the little, you open it and you put it in the person, right? The, the one with the directions where it yeah, talks the you white, through it? Yeah, the white and black one, the little nice. box one. Yeah. I give it to him, and he looks at it, he goes, he was so honest. He's like 22 years old. He looks at me and goes, Bob, I always use alone, so I've always felt these things are not going to help. <laughs> true true think about that that's a junkie that's a junkie who knows himself and yep. what you got to impress about that kid like don't what don't use dangerously by yourself when you just leave a rehab or you just leave a sober living you know that's that's crazy while we were well, i haven't seen you for a few weeks i mean i we had holidays and a yeah, surgery Christmas. and a surgery and all this stuff. So, Christmas and hernias. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, one that turned into two, which was wonderful. But the um, I saw the picture of the one that was enough for me. I got to <laughs> tell you, <laughs> we we had it. We had a couple leave. Wait, is that be, is that why you have the uh, t the, uh, the two belly buttons? True. Well, yeah. actually, that's healed up pretty good now. But you've lost weight too. You must feel good about that. Well, don't they oh, you have lost weight. Okay, don't they good. take something out when you? <laughs> no, they push intestine back in, and then they, you know I've been. Let's eat, not get graphic about it. I, no, I've Suck been had surgery. I've been I've been eating different though too, so that, that's that's a big part of it. But the um, you look healthy as a motherfucker. Why? You thank you. The healthiest I've seen you in a long time. Wow, thank you. Not that you look bad before. Well, thank. But you. now when you've improved your health, it is vibrant and, and gosh now and, I'm, I'm blushing I yeah, think. yeah 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 um but the, so we had a couple leave uh treatment they decided that it wasn't for them and on that friday night he overdosed and ended up in the hospital didn't die oh good and while she's in the hospital with him she can't wait to go out and get loaded she goes out gets loaded and overdoses and she's in the hospital the next day and these are not these are not beginners yeah but this is people out of their own jurisdiction where they don't know the dope and they're buying from wherever. They're buying from whoever. And so we had a, a, a couple that if we didn't live when we do now and people are so aware of what an overdose is and it's so common, we, we'd have these two people dead. It's just so, you know, it's and, it's, so crazy. and it's like I have this rubber duck in my office that I got from a client and it has sunglasses on it. And people want the sunglasses because they're real sunglasses. And I can't remember if they're from a client that died or if they're from a client that I always confuse with the guy that's died that I think may be dead now. This is sad. 
It's the saddest. You know, but what can you do? You get up and you go and you try and help those that want to swim, man. Let's let's see it. Let's give it a go. Well, you know, I just think we owe we owe it as an as an industry as an occupation to understand that we have uh, eye of a needle success rate, right? So the idea that I did a group last Tuesday, there was twenty two people there. The idea that maybe five, six, seven of them are gonna turn their lives around here in the next year or so. But for the most part, 15 people are going to use again and use with impunity, mm-hmm. right? I think we owe it to say, I love you, man. I don't want you to die. I don't feel ashamed. If you don't agree with this stuff, it's totally fine. I understand. I understand being 20 years old. I can't imagine what it's like trying to get sober at 20 years old. But I also can't imagine what it's like to be such a retard you're in rehab at 20 years old. <laughs> Again, so so i'm again, totally disillusioned by the i have no point of reference like i was 27 when i went to my own rehab i owned my own home you know what i mean so there's no i don't understand you know not wanting to hit the road like jack kerouac or or you know uh, join the join the army or do something with that fragile part of your undecided years let's say from 18 to 22 do something don't just sit around your parents house and do drugs and do nothing right i I don't get that i don't get it so no i would have never i would have never met you way back when if i wouldn't have said i'm out of orange county i'm gonna live in hollywood just because why did you do it i why did i do it just because i wanted to go out there i want to be a part of where i was you know well, one of the ideas of why America has so many drug addicts and alcoholics, such a high propensity of it, is seeking, right? So and immigration's a big talk here in the public zeitgeist the last couple weeks. So who comes to America? People from Ireland, Italy, Africa, um, uh, uh, Asia, trying, they're seekers. They're trying to, they want to go fucking see what's over there. Drug addicts have a propensity to want to see what's over there, that the genetic predisposition that's in the individual. Now, those parents who immigrate here might have a drinking problem, but they're not going to have a drug problem. No, right? they were able to get their ass but out of where they're from. But their offspring, generation after generation, if you look at the Forrest family, it's a fucking train wreck. It's a train wreck. <laughs> it's unbelievable. My dad had... My dad had eight brothers and two sisters, right? They all but one came from Minnesota to California. They all had successful lives. They all created businesses or opportunities or, or you know what I mean? None of them cracked up and became pathetic, right? <laughs> all of their grandchildren are pathetic. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I hope they're not listening. <laughs> well, no, I hope they're not. Well, some of them aren't. No, my Uncle Jerry's kids are good, right? <laughs> but, 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 like, I'm telling you, my cousin Wayne, who I was very close with, robbed the bank and went to prison for years, and then he came out, and me and him were hanging out sober in Mount Washington in 1991. How about that? Very nice. Living in the Hipsterville now, but it wasn't the Hipsterville then. And we were going to meetings in the Lano Club in Glendale and stuff like that, and he... Just never could catch on, and, and he didn't die from drugs, but he died very early in life. Very sad. I loved the guy. He was my one cousin I really clicked with. Two of my other cousins are, died of alcoholism like in their 30s. That's right. You know what I mean? So, so what I'm saying is when you're seeking, you're fucking good, right? The genetic predisposition is supplement. It's pushed down in the seeking, in the wanting to accomplish. I hadn't thought about that. But if you're sitting around doing nothing, that shit is going to fucking spring up and catch you and drag you down just like this thing in Elvis's Plants vs. Zombies. Right? You ever played Plants (laughs) vs. Zombies? Never have. Okay, there's a water part where you can put this, this this, uh, this like plant in the ocean, and then whoever comes walking up in front of it, it'll just gobble them up and pull them down under the water. I think that's what the genetic predisposition does for idle to idle people. I swear to God, who, I, have, no, a, who that, have a genetic that predisposition fits. that fits so much because you got so many people that struggle who are artistic that are, when they're coming up, they're hungry and their brain's a workhorse, you know, and they're always feeding it, feeding it, feeding it. Go, they go, may be go. using and they may be drinking, but it's that downtime. It's once the success happens, now they don't have to work so hard and their brain—they're not driven. 
they get lost. I'll tell you. I'll tell you I, what happened. No, just I can look at Mike and I. We were driven motherfuckers. He can say he's not. He was a driven motherfucker. He wrote a great <laughs> song every four days for four years. We would all just sit around like fucking Mike Mart's amazing. You hear that Bobby Kennedy song? You hear the, the your shoes are dirtier than mine. You hear that fucking song he wrote? And he was not even writing them for Thelonious Monster bands. He was just writing them to play for his friends. <laughs> it was amazing, right? It's a, mother- the top Jimmy song. I still yeah, got. I guess still got to redo that. Oh, see, he's claiming a little bit ah. of that right there. That's a little Mike Mart owning his owning his talent. So. So one song we wrote called Anymore that everybody likes. It's a Thelonious Monster song. Um, but, but for the most part, Mike was just a driven motherfucker. To, I think to impress me, Steve Wynn, friends, like he's the best songwriter. And he had this air of, I don't care. We had, you know we had I mean? a little songwriting community. We had a yeah. little songwriting community that we kind of yeah, competed with wrote, each other. I wrote a couple good yeah, songs probably, in a probably, year, and yeah. Mike wrote five in a month. Probably right? just probably just how they did it down Tin Pan Alley, you know, on the old old school those songwriters. But back you in, were playing them for other songwriters, knowing how much better your songs were than them. That's the only point I'm making, and that's driving ambition, and that's some sort of thing. Now Mike gets married, right? Settles down. And he's got nothing but idle time. What happened, Mike? <laughs> I had what? kids. You know? No, no, no. I'm focused. talking about with Susie. Oh. You were sitting at home doing nothing for two years. With Susie, I was doing dope. <laughs> That's what I she was, exactly. Ding, 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 ding. Are you following the conversation, Mike, or are you just engineering? <laughs> following so a little Mike bit Mark, once he wasn't driven anymore once he yeah. arrived wherever he wanted to arrive that was probably when did you get married what year i don't uh, i got married <laughs> twice i got married twice i got married in 92 i think 92 and then, okay there you go so so he's just sitting around in this beautiful apartment in silver lake doing uh, that, nothing that, but oh, smoking that was crack. melissa that was melissa no, in Silver Lake with Susie. God, Mike, do you, I have no. to tell your life to you? <laughs> that, <laughs> Maybe we should write down his you know, life Bob, in that, bullet points. That apartment that I lived with at Susie was a tiny little place. It was place. a great building, though, with the big lawn overlooking downtown L.A. What are you complaining about? Now he's complaining about the size no, of the apartment. No, you know what? Here's the thing. You were so down and out at that point in your life, you thought that that was a fucking mansion or something. Man, he was impressed with cardboard boxes yeah, going, damn, that's a nice box. It was a fucking tiny dump. It was cool. It looked over downtown. That's all I remember. I remember you from back in those days. You yeah. would, we'd always see each other crossing the, you going back and forth from Bonnie Bird. Yeah, that little secret street. Little street it had there. more so ceilings than Bob's house. Yeah, mine was. <laughs> one a, more ceiling than had, his did. Mine had windows like <laughs> that you could roll down. Yeah. yeah so, exactly. so, but I, the same thing happened to me when I was living in Mount Washington, when I'm talking about with Wayne, right? My cousin Wayne. Okay. I got this beautiful house. My dog, I always tell the story. Like, what happens when you really hit the jackpot in music? Your dog has a psychologist. I had a dog (laughs) who had a dog trainer that came by to try to train the dog to not bark at the squirrels up in the trees. Oh, That's when you know you've arrived in show business. (laughs) That's when you know you've lost it. And that's (laughs) where I just went off the deep end. I spent every dime I had. I sold every car I had. I ended up moving out of there in the middle of the night after three months of lying about what was going on. And I would sneak back in there sometimes to sleep. Like I would go by and see if anybody was there and moved in. And if they hadn't, I'd go in this window and sleep on the floor. Right? Mm. Shoot drugs and sleep on the floor. Nice. So, so I, I really truly believe that idle, the, with the genetic predisposition of addiction and idleness, you, it's a 100% conversion to pathetic drug addict, right? So what, are, what is this generation of kids we're dealing with? They have nothing going on. They have right. no drive and ambition. They have no, no dreams. They have no goals. And the parents stand by and allow that. Right? There's no mm-hmm. game plan for life. So then it becomes a survival thing. Right? We just, want, we just don't want them to die, which I'm all for. I don't want them to die either. But unless they get a game plan, they're, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. Right. Unless right. they have some goals, they're going to keep doing what they're Something's doing. Something's got to change. Unless they 
all of a sudden the miracle of 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 drive and and wanting to achieve a, whatever it is comes upon them they will continue doing what they're doing that's right. the population we're dealing with right and i'm saying I've been saying it for years. Go back to school. I don't care. Go to Costa Rica. I don't care. Just go somewhere and do fucking something. And yeah. I, you know, that's what I love that Jack says that all the time. And it's one of the things like I, I take your stuff and I take Jack's stuff. Like with you, I took the, um, we got to love the un, unsurrendered and help yeah, the surrendered. Okay. I've, I've taken that back to work and I tell everybody, love that idiot. He's unsurrendered. You know, you got to love him until he gets it. Cause that's all we if can you do. Don't, if you're not trying to coerce them or convert them, which is what a lot of 12-steppers do nowadays, rather than just listen to them and find them amusing, right? right. So, so I was talking to a guy the other day, and he said, AA is bullshit. And I said, okay, well, I mean, how, how do you create a world where you have people that listen to your bullshit, <laughs> right? Because that's my main thing now about it, because they're mistaking the rehab as like some Valhalla, I said, the only reason that people are listening to you at the rehab is because they're, they're getting paid to. They're getting paid to. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine said the greatest thing. I think we're just in the paid caring business, right? We're paid to care about people. Sometimes, but you couldn't pay me enough to care for these people. <laughs> That's it, you know, for real. You couldn't, I mean, I get paid to be there, but there's just no, you have, you, if you're not digging it, I, I've really well, enjoyed yeah, being where I am. It, find it amusing. I, I've you fallen back it. into, exactly, being able to laugh at it and being able to pull them in and being able to tolerate it and not taking it personal and all that stuff. But that other thing, where what Jack always says is, you know, if, if something doesn't change, you're going again. And I, I, I like the way that sits because you're going again. There's motion to me using. It's not just going somewhere and sitting. There's a whole lot of motion behind it. No, I call, well, here's what I call using. It's single-minded purposeness. So, so you have a, a single, singular mind now. As soon as, when you're sober, you have a split mind. You have a schizophrenic mind. It's going everywhere. You want to do this. You don't want to do that. You don't like this. You don't agree with that person. It's going everywhere. And it's a bit much for a lot of people. Right, you have to sit with that until that calms down. It takes years for that to calm down. Mm-hmm. You got to be able to be motivated to stay sober through all that chaotic thinking. Right, the steps supposedly relieve that. Uh, you know, didn't for me, but I hope it does for everybody else. Uh, <laughs> but you heard Mike Mark got that. Didn't for me. <laughs> he's listening now. He wasn't <laughs> listening earlier. Well, but, I was just thinking about the schizophrenia part and everything <laughs> that we deal with. Yeah, you just got to live with it. Like, yep. and so. So, but at a certain point, it calms down. You get more streamlined thinking and you get goal. You know, I got to go to work today. So I don't have a lot of time to sit around and think about like killing myself. I got to go to work. Right. Right. No time. And so, so the idea is to, to hang in there through all the chaotic thinking till you start to get some direction in life. Like I got to, I got to be there at 7am. I got to wash the dishes all day. I got to do this. I got to do that. Right. The rehab kids are not doing that. They're just going from rehab to rehab talking about their belly buttons. It's not helping them. <laughs> no, I you know it, it's it's good. I like I like what we're doing now. I like at how 45 days it's like okay, you've got the afternoons free. I need you to start looking for work. I love I love that part. I like getting them through the beginning. I'm really liking the middle of treatment where we can get them working for the last 30 days. So do that, they really get jobs? So, yes, they do get jobs. In Huntington? In all sorts of jobs in Huntington. Really? Like yeah. what? Like vape shops and stuff like that? Everywhere downtown. No, I knew, I knew a friend of mine at a rehab down there, and the one girl I met that, that had a job, like all rehabs say, oh, yeah, we get them jobs. None of them do. But, but so this one girl I met that I'd known for years, I, she said, I, I really do have a job, Bob. You'd be proud of me. And I said, okay, where? And she said, a vape shop. I know that's income, but no, like one of my clients just got a job uh, moving furniture. He's, he's doing furniture moving. Another one, um, it works at one of the um, Is this skateboard a friend shops. Or a client? Oh, they're clients. Yeah, these so, are clients, and then the other one's got a job in a, a skate a skate skate shop down there. So it's like they're they're getting actual jobs. Another one works over at the, uh, male works over at the Forever Twenty One, which is an all female like. Korean owned. Yeah, yeah. Forever 21. <laughs> but but so what? I mean, that's he, he says he meets a lot of girls there. And I said, cool. And you can get free clothes. So, so I don't know if that's true. 
if you're a so, cross dresser. So, yeah, he could be. He's pretty. He could be fluid. So, uh, so yeah, jobs, um, school. Uh, you know, a lot of times kids don't even have their GEDs because they've been going to rehab so much, right? Well, that's that's got to be a part of the situation too. Just it's, to set a goal and achieve it. So, right. one of the things like my son took the high school equivalency test, which is different than the GED, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to blow his anonymity or whatever, but I do it all the time, right? I don't think he listens to Just it. some kid you so, know. So some kid I know, when he was 17, wanted to get out of school and took this high school coaching Proficiency, test. Proficiency, right? And I kept saying, are you going to say? Are you going to say? He's like, I don't know. Goes and takes it and passes. So I was really proud. I was like, it's not fucking GED. It's really the high school equivalency test. Different. It's like twice a year. Ten years later, he tells me, you know, Dad, the way I passed that, like I took acid. <laughs> took Good for test. him. <laughs> and I was like, and at first, like the AA sober counselor, therapist, Dr. Drew Tudor guy was like, oh, that's terrible. And then another part of me, the Bob part of me, the Bob and Mike part of me, the Thelonious <laughs> Monster part of me was like, fucking goddamn right you did yes you you're did. a forest and it worked. <laughs> it worked and it worked so you know what good for him so he, i always tell that to clients that are nervous about taking the gd but like my son took acid and passed the high school equivalent drop a tab so, it's a lot cheaper so i'm sure you could pass the ged without much trouble a lot cheaper than a tutor <laughs> and a lot more fun <laughs> five, five, so there five, you go kids five bucks, five bucks and you can <laughs> pass. anyways i love my son i was talking to him the other day He's, he's, he turned out really complicated, but good. <laughs> complicated, out. but good. You know, what's funny is he's not even done. So he's going to get 31. even, he's going to even get he's better. 31. How much have you changed since you were 31? Oh, 31. I was thinking Mike Martin lives in the <laughs> Wow. That, that house has a door and shit and I a mean, roof. I'm going to drive by there. Xander, <laughs> Xander still lives there, right, Mike? I, I know where Xander lives. I'm going to find that apartment and go look at it. And to me, Can you take pictures? To me, Mike and Susie lived on this mountaintop in Silver Lake in <laughs> no. this huge It's like some Menolipus or something in your... <laughs> it was a fucking shoebox. <laughs> <laughs> there were waterfalls draining into the pool and well you were doing nothing there but smoking crack and shooting heroin i can tell you that you're not talking about the one with the basement <laughs> right no not the basement one the basement, the basement one, one was great <laughs> the basement one that's when i that's when i still had it going on so that had to have been before or after that when was the basement one the basement one was so cool it was when i was married to melissa and, yeah that and, was before and, and i built was, like a room down in the basement yeah, do where drugs. i mean there was actual dirt floor and fucking rocks on the wall i mean there were, it was like a cave man with rats and fucking bugs and i just had a, like a den down there that was i could get loaded in and you know and do music it was fun as hell down there that, that reminds me why are you on a billboard i'm not on a billboard that's a frame Oh, what is it? I thought he was on a billboard. Long story short, it's it was on the Facebook. Yeah, on Facebook you can put a frame on your profile picture, and I put a frame that looks like I'm it looked on a like he was on a billboard in L.A. Like down and I would have fooled somebody else too. Yeah, we can, I'm sure there's a lot of fooling going on. Hey, did you see Google's not going to allow any rehab ads now as of today? Well, okay. Good. Good for them. Yeah, finally they're catching on. But I was going to say a lot's changed in, since we started doing this as far as body brokering. Think, things and are getting squared off. Things are changing, and they're changing so quick. And, I mean, even the, even the clients that, that, that come in that used to do, be the guys that would buy and sell people, I'm talking to people that are street level that are like, you can't even do this stuff anymore. Yeah. And it's like, it's like everybody's down on it. And I said, well, it's because people are dying and shit. I know it's kind of a drag to not be able to make that kind of money. But when you're killing people, you know, why don't you work for the mafia? Pull a trigger instead. It's a lot more brave. The advertising gives him like a Earl Scheib type of vibe. You yeah. know what I mean? Where well, it's like, hey, come get your fucking rehab but for that's what I've been, But I know, but I've been trying to educate the public and they don't listen is you don't get your health care off a of Google search, right? You get your health care from a healthcare person who knows what they're talking about, your insurance company or your primary care physician or a family friend who's a doctor or a psychologist. You get the information right. from humans. It's supposed to be health care. Not from you don't the get, internet. You don't get health care from the yellow pages. People do, though. Anything else you can. 
but Dude, healthcare should be referred Google by a doctor. Google search cancer. Cancer's another one that they're doing it with. American Cancers of America, that thing. Well, the psych meds on TV, the ads for the psych meds on TV should be outlawed, you know, because it advertises. People go to their doctor and say, Well, that's I, a whole nother can of worms. I know, so, but that shit should be outlawed. I mean, they outlawed fucking cigarette commercials. Do you, do you have Netflix, Mike? Yes. Have you watched Prescription Thugs? No. Watch that. That's a good. That breaks the whole thing down. All that advertisement from the yeah. There's a good the, one. The thing that most people don't know because either most, way, the layman people, on the street. Mike, hold on. Most people don't know because most people don't leave the United States. Is that the United States, Paraguay, and Brazil are the only three countries in the world, including China and Russia, or or Afghanistan even who don't allow, we're the only three that allow prescription drugs to be advertised on television. Hmm. How about that? Oh, wow. That's bad. The only three, Paraguay, Brazil, and the United States of America. And the reason why that is, is because the drug companies control media uh, to a certain extent, not all of it, but they certainly control, they, uh, they control a large revenue stream to right. CNN They've in particular. They've got money, yeah. CNN in particular, and it's not by accident. They don't want CNN doing an undercover story about Big Pharma. You know, I watch Fox News <laughs> for 30 minutes a day, Chuck. Why? Because somebody challenged me to listen to the other side, right? Huh. So, so I was watching it a couple days ago, and I swear to God, there was a report about prescription drugs that you would not see on MSNBC or CNN. And it told the truth about prescription drugs and the prescription drug epidemic and what these drug companies are doing. And I was shocked. Then I started watching their commercials. There's no drug commercials on Fox News, hmm. right? It's pillow commercials and weird, weird products. They like, don't. They don't. They really don't push anything. There's not. There's not. When you watch CNN, every third commercial is a drug commercial. Right. It is yeah. bought and sold by big pharma. Well, they're on all the, the, the broadcast channels and stuff, too, like Lester Light. But know. no, but it doesn't matter. I don't care if they're on Desperate Housewives or whatever, the Beverly Hills Housewives. I don't give a fuck. They're not going to do investigative journalism about this fucking plague that's been brought across America. CNN's supposed to. CNN's supposed to educate the public no, about left, it. ABC really... News is supposed to educate the public. NBC and MSNBC are supposed to. But since there's their $5 billion in advertisement goes to those networks, it's pretty much they're not going to turn around and criticize the pharmaceutical industry. No. And America needs to know that. Well, yeah, that's bullshit, man. It's the truth. Well, like, look at that. Someone dared you something, and it and it paid off. At least in that. No, I, I, you know, the when you look at the the money that goes into the 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 uh, campaigns of different congressmen, senators, Senate women, right? It is like sixty forty Democrats accept big pharma money. They hmm. they accept more money than Republicans. Isn't that crazy? Because the NRA fills in the rest for the Republicans between the drug companies and the gun companies. <laughs> that, was, that, that, that was one of my favorite, and it does bother them. That was one of my favorite dumb memes of the year was, we should make guns illegal. That way, no one would get killed. The same way everybody stopped doing drugs when we made them illegal. You know, it's yeah. like you, you can make things as illegal as you want. Well, here's an interesting thing. I saw something that you don't really see on C-SPAN, which nobody watches except for me sometimes late at night. Uh, C-SPAN had this author, this woman, this amazing woman, like super knows her shit. And they were doing a root cause analysis of what could be done to prevent Las Vegas, right? And she said, listen, I don't want to get into a gun debate. That's the first thing she said. So let's just deal with it as a mental health issue, right? So here's an interesting uh, thing that that America has that other countries don't have. So the shooter in Las Vegas's father was a quantified, defined sociopath. He was a bank robber, murderer, sociopath. Huh. He had been in several psychiatric facilities in prison. He was. It was evidence based that he was a sociopath. They now know that sociopathy follows in genetic families, right? So what she's saying is if we're going to deal with it strictly as a mental health issue, his offspring should be monitored. Because if they were monitored, just simply in the FBI database, 
it, when that guy started accelerating his weaponry acquisitions to 43 in one year, the FBI should have paid him a visit because you know for a fact his father was a sociopath, right? And take, it takes a special kind of person to do that shit. That's, yeah. not, that's not just angry. No, it's not. It's not. It, it's it. It has a certain genetic predisposition to it that then you know it was a little late in life to come out in him. Maybe he was a workhorse until then. But it, I don't mind. <laughs> you I, know, I'm a narcissist. Put me in the database. If I start, <laughs> if I what a, what a narcissist end up doing? Just talking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, no, he don't really kill anybody. Do no, they? but you've got things to do. You, you know, he his workhorse brain ran out. That guy had been re- like retired and was just doing some gambling. Yeah, but but it is a strange thing that she was just saying. Okay, let's not have it be a gun debate. Let's just have it be a mental health debate. And the mental health professionals and mental health part of the American uh, addiction medicine and psychiatric community will follow the the addiction community. And if you see somebody who has a predisposition to, to, to mental illness and an addiction, right? And they start buying a bunch of weapons, we should go out and talk to them, right? Just from a mental health perspective, not from a criminal justice perspective or a gun control perspective. What the hell is going on with you? But see, we don't do that because we don't like telling people what to do. They oh yeah! Can you could you imagine do? what the ACLU would I say? Know, I know. Can you imagine what, how, the, how the liberals would react to that? Yeah, because yeah. I think that's a very Republican idea. I think the Republicans would be down for that all day. Mm, yeah, and it, it gets in that gun control world that Republicans would want that. They they would love that because that that until weeds they out re- the until yeah, they until it's in their house, house. until it's in their backyard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and it keeps it out of the gun control debate. It was right. an interesting thing. So here's the thing. I think we're going to have, in the next 18 months to to 36 months, we're going to have a real up-and-coming thing about drugs in America, right? I I really believe that drugs are going to start to be seen as destructive, deadly, dangerous, not from legislation, from the public's reaction to all this death for five years, Right? I think it's already spreading into 13, 14, 15-year-olds. They know like that. I don't want to end up like my fucking cousin. I don't want to end up like my brother. Compared right? to five years ago, it the seems... The naivete it seems, that was coming into the drugs and, oh, you can get it on Craigslist and it's the greatest thing and just like Jim Morrison or whatever. It's not that anymore. The public knows that drugs are dangerous, that drugs are deadly. We don't need any laws. We just need to see what happens. And I believe you're going to see a decrease in drug use, right? It's particularly opiates, you're going to, which is going to lead to a decrease in admissions to rehabs, right? That's fine. That's what we want. That's excellent. I want, I want to be out of business and go back playing music. So let's, let's you know, ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, if we could make a dent in what's going on, which it's felt like we're just throwing glasses of water into the ocean for the last five years, I have a feeling it's going to turn. I think it's turning right now and we don't know it, right? Well, and it should be a natural turn. It should be a natural turn of events, but it's taken so long that I was wondering if it was ever going to happen. You know, I don't know if you if you heard the same thing I did, but someone was telling me, hey, man, it's like the amount of people on... Um, Suboxone is up to like for Suboxone maintenance. Seven, is up to seven six million. million. I heard seven six. Million. Seven million. Just, are you freaking kidding me? Good job, pharma. You got them on both ends. You got them coming in and coming out. And I don't mind that. Listen, but but right now I know we're past that. That's how sad it is. Is that someone like me who was never harm reduction at all has gone harm reduction? Yeah, I'm open minded to anything that works. Listen, you know what's lost in all this? The churches have really let the addiction community down. Churches used to had have programs, and for some reason they just got out of it. Maybe it was too hard to keep one open because of all the money bonanza that was going on with all the rehab expansion in America. But church, church, faith-based programs really work. And it's like I, Salvation Army works really No, but well. I'm talking about even yeah. under Bush... Too, well, they, there was a lot of faith-based programs that were very great. A lot of people do celebrate recovery. Um, a lot of people go to the big non-denominational churches, 
which which is cool. I, I'm glad. I just didn't haven't... Rick Warren's kid die of drugs. Yeah, I thought he didn't. He, he killed kill himself, himself, himself. But it was. I think it was a drug related. I'm not sure, but I know that it was. It was in along those lines where it's. But I mean, I would trust Rick Warren to run a rehab in Orange County over the motherfuckers that run them. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and I'm an atheist. And, and, and that's well, saying something. He's already he's already that. rich. You don't have to worry I about respect, him trying to yeah, be rich. Like, <laughs> 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 he might do it just to, to help people. You know, I'm really, if, if people, if Oprah put her money where her mouth is, I'd really like to see her do something with like a billion dollars, throw a billion dollars into something. Yeah. The, uh, the she, idea, gives, she gives speeches instead. No, but, but, Obviously, you just showed your Republican colors there for a second. I the, just showed my anti, anti there are colors. There are many thousands of Americans who give a give billion dollars, but who do you give it to? Who do you trust? They're in the same position. Right. Who do you give it to? Who do you so, give it to? To solve this problem. The, most of the people that work in this industry are not trusted with $100, let alone a billion dollars. Who would you give it to? Right. So you end up mm. giving it to the Salvation Army or, or faith-based program or something. So I, I think that's been one of the consequences of this greed bonanza that's gone on and the cesspool that the recovery industry became is the philanthropic world just thinks, fuck these people. They're not untrustworthy scumbags. I know for a fact because they've, to like. they've told me that. We're, we're hard to like. We're a hard to like group, and really. Well, look. here's the thing that was very disillusioning. It was disillusioning from. It was shocking to me. Some of the great philanthropic rehabs in Los Angeles changed and became for profit to go after that money. Also, mm -hmm. I'm not going to name names, but in Santa Monica and Hollywood, some of the greatest programs in Los Angeles for decades turned around and said, "We're going to go in, in network. We're going to go in for for profit." And they all failed because, because, and I remember saying, like, you think you're going to fucking compete with me? Are you fucking <laughs> kidding me? You don't even know who you're talking to. They just heard, oh, these places are grossing a million dollars a month. We could do that. They all failed at it. And so, so those are the places that my <clears throat> millionaire and billionaire friends were giving money to, the one in Santa Monica in particular. And they, as soon as they went for profit, all, two of the people, the main contributors to this program, were like, one of them talked to me and said, the fuck is that about? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. Like, just budget. It's so, I ran a nonprofit for four years. It's so great. You just budget. You ask your board. This is what we need. This is what will help 400 people a year. It's all quantified. Everybody gets a, you know, I think I was making $43,000 a year running map, right? Right. Buddy was making 90, I was making 43, Winnie was making 50. The whole budget for this staff was like $200,000, and we had $600,000 to pay for treatment, right? See, this is, that's, maybe, that's, maybe that's part of the, the frustration, is there's all this money that comes in. You get people, you get government throwing money at it, and where does it go? It goes to Suboxone instead Look of Look at the treatment. greatest program in Orange County, the Pat Moore Foundation. <clears throat> they tried to go Gone, for yeah. insurance money, and they ended up closing. So uh, how, do, how do we get something in place so that if money becomes available, it can be utilized without being hoard out? To well, the, I mean, the people I've talked to are very, they, they, they'll trust me, but I don't know what I would do with it. I'm the only honest one. I, said, I don't, you know, I wouldn't even know what to do. Well, first you, you, you give 10% to me. No, and then we, <laughs> but, but, but who, what population are you going to serve? The, the idea, I don't want to waste somebody's hundred million dollars trying to help millennials that I don't think are going to get help. Right. That's, that's a problem. So, so at first I had this, this nonprofit that we were thinking of starting to treat that population, right? Millennials. Well, you'd have to take the cushy out of it this so they wouldn't want to go. 2010, I started a nonprofit. I got the 95 number. It was, I forget the, even the name of it. And we were going to help 18 to 24-year-olds who, but they had to be indigent, meaning the parents, no help from the parents, no fucking cigarettes. I don't even want to talk to your parents, Right. Mm -hmm. And they'll do what, what, what I think they should do, right? No interaction with parents. If you get any funding from your parents, you're out of the program, including a cigarette, right? Because okay. I wanted a bunch of them to just fucking do what they're supposed to do instead of have the parents split it off and cause chaos, right? The problem was 
I was dealing with that population anyways. And even when I got a parent to agree to do that, the success rate was zero. Right? You can't, it's very difficult for a 19-year-old, yeah. 17-year-old, 18-year-old to get sober. You know what I'm saying? I, I do. I do. It doesn't mean they can't learn something that they can take with them and maybe but it'll keep them around. No, people but that's want not the investment, right? And, no, that's not the investment. nonprofits, they want results. They want to see people turn their lives around. The other thing with that millennial <clears throat> approach was there was nothing to compare them turning their life around towards. You know what I mean? When you take a 40-year-old, like a friend of mine I've been trying to deal with now, and he's had great success and now he's homeless and whatever and you turn him around and he gets a job and he gets on his feet and he stays sober for two or three years that's a miracle because you can see like what happened in his in his life narrative right he went everybody thought he was going to die and they turned it around mm -hmm. these kids they don't have that narrative they were living at their parents house they were on drugs and now they kind of have a job at a vape shop it's really not what you can market <laughs> I almost it's, worked at a vape shop <laughs> You know, you can make as much money as you do work in a recovery, and no, you just the, go, this flavor is really good, bro. Yeah, <laughs> I saw them pop Chuck, up that all That was over. like two months ago. Huh? <laughs> what did no. you say, Michael? The vape shop job for for Chuck was not that long ago. No, was I, that just... was right before I started working at um, at Warren's, and I got hired there at 420. <laughs> It well, was, I was going to tell you there's another job came up that that I know you're happy where you are, but if you wanted to work with Saska clients, that's doing God's work, I, Chuck. I, I love the that's prison doing, population. That's doing God's work, Chuck. It, you want to you want to leave your yuppified kids getting jobs <laughs> in fucking vape shops and go work with Saska guys? You know, I just I just talked to a guy this morning who was so he's one of those guys that took the place to stay for 90 days with Saska. And it's the only reason he's not in prison right now. He was there for 10 years if that program had not been in place. And we were trying to figure out, I was talking with him and I go, so what's different from you compared to 95% of the guys that get this leg up? Age, they'll tell you. I dealt uh, he with was Saska. 30. He I was. dealt with Saska for years. Mostly the ones that I saw turn their lives around were from the very first moment they came in, they say, Helms, I want to talk to you for a second. Like, I really, I'm going to take this program really seriously because I want to give up my number. Time and time again. Right. And the motivation, these are 40-year-old, you know, gangsters, um, former Bloods, former Crips, uh, 18th Street, right? And they're in their 40s. They just want out because prison is so fucking crazy. <laughs> right? Right. Because they're like, yeah, there's these little kids up there. They don't fucking wait for a green light. They don't wait for rules. They don't follow rules. And they're like, this is in two thousand and this is in two thousand. I was working that population, and they were just like, "These kids are fucking crazy. I gotta yeah. get out of prison." And they knew that getting sober was the way to give up their number. It's called for those of you at home that don't know a lot about the criminal justice system. So when you have a parole, when you are, when you go to prison and you get out and you have a parole number. Um, that number lasts for three years. And usually you violate again or get a new charge and go back. That's a, or, or, a continual yeah, cycle. Depending on, and you have yeah. the same parole number, the same number. Some of these dudes had it for 20 years, the same number. Right. Well, they right? take it into prison with them. And so and they you, take great pride in staying sober so that someday, you know, two, three years when their parole is up, they give up their number and their number is gone. And it was so magical when some of these guys would make it. Hmm. It was that was really life changing, you know what I mean? It really mm -hmm. was. And so, think about it, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just did. <laughs> and you thought, I thought about it and I thought, yeah, that would be really great. But you know, it's I, hard I, to get them to talk to open up, it's very hard to get them to. to at, at Phoenix House, I had a lot of them. Yeah, I love that population. <clears throat> uh, you know, it's just such a weird They, they world. do understand a lot that a lot of other populations don't. They are capable of... They're, they're very respectful, respectful, They're totally too. patient. They can sit and do nothing for hours. They were just in prison for four <laughs> years. <laughs> they are patient. They understand respect. They respect it. Like, they're like, they used to call me Dr. Bob, and I was like, I'm not a doctor. Then they say, Dr. Bob, I need to talk to you. And I'll be like, I'm not a doctor, <laughs> dude. <laughs> but you're acting like one. <laughs> That's good enough. I loved it. So, anyways, I ended up leaving that job because I forget why. Okay. And Elsie and uh, uh, paroled women too. 
That was Ooh. a crazy fucking place. So I worked at MAP, PRC, then I worked for Dr. Drew for like nine years at Los Encinas. Then I started my own place, Hollywood Recovery Center. Then I started working in the courts. Then I worked for, for, uh, no, I, I, I just worked for myself. I worked kind of at Promises. Like I had, I, I worked in the offices of the outpatient of Promises, but I wasn't paid by Promises. I had my own clients that I managed there. Right, it was a weird arrangement because I worked with the courts. Was Sheila Balkan, one of the greatest women ever, taught me everything about the courts. So, PRC, Matt, PRC, um, Lost and Cenas, Promises, the courts, and the, and I started my own place, Hollywood Recovery, for a couple of years, outpatient, and then Aloe, and then Temecula, and then always Aloe. So two of the places of the five I've worked at, I started. <laughs> that makes it. That's kind makes of Bob it style. <laughs> yeah, it is. You kind of kind of a boss man. I remember at, in, this is 2011. We, I had I had just enough to cover the bills and to pay me. And Shelley was the other counselor, and we had this. I remember that place was in the movie. You guys were setting yeah, that yeah. place up. It was in the, the greatest place. But I was. I was such a horrible businessman. So, so we had a contract that, the, that we did all the aftercare for Celebrity Rehab. And that was like six years, right? So, so I got, and I got 5000 a head for every client. Wait, that, did you set that up so that would be there for it? Or? No, no. I set it up because I thought I was more ambitious than I was. So in 2011, Jelly goes, why not? You know, she'd been doing all the research because she's a real anal person. She knows everything about everything. She's looking it up. And she goes, I know, I think I know how we could start accepting insurance. And I said, fuck insurance. We're not taking insurance, right? 2011. Think about that. Okay. She had it all set up. And I was like, no, we just take the celebrity rehab money and we private word of mouth. We're fine, right? So the place never profited money. It never made more than $100 in a month because every time we would break even, I would quit marketing. <laughs> as long as I could pay us. <laughs> That's like, good. Right? It was good to me. So, if, and I think about it now. If, we, if I would have started an outpatient with sober living in 2011, do you know how rich I would be? Do you know? That's four years before anyone else does it, Chuck. Yeah, I don't even know if that was a model back then. I was doing it. I was doing it with living in recovery and this other sober living, and and having them. Stay. I guess I guess it was because that's what that's what Solid Landings was. It was that same thing. So yeah, and I was and if I would have done it, what Shelly said, I'd be I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I'd be in Bali right now, <laughs> right? And I was just like, I just thought it's such a headache dealing with insurance companies. Fuck that. And she was right. And now she runs a place that has eighty-two beds. Can you imagine what it's like to run a place that has 82 beds? To, to run it? No. Can you imagine? I mean, some of you that are counselors out there, imagine 82 drug addicts every day, all the time. It's yeah. fucking crazy. No, I couldn't do what my boss does. Yeah, the highest census ever got at Hollywood Recovery was how many chairs we had. I think we had 10 chairs. And the facilitator had to sit in one. So it's nine clients. It's That's a good-sized group. Nine, that's, that's almost a perfect size group. Have. Well, the celebrity rehab clients, only half of them ever showed up any day of the week. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there was overlapping of the last season of celebrity rehab. They weren't done with their six months in the mm -hmm. new season. Oh, no. And they didn't, you know, it was a kind of a strange mix of celebrity How fun. rehab. It's too bad you people. can't tell those stories. It was fun. It was really fun stuff. One time, well, I can tell you the events. <clears throat> one time, one of them that was staying sober complained to me that the, his roommate they'd move into an apartment was using. And I said, dude, don't fucking do that. I don't want to hear about that. It's not my problem. Right? It's your, <laughs> I said, because it's, it's your problem. Right. Because I told them not to move in together. Right? And I said, you have a contract then. One of you leaves, they're out. They have no right to live there. You got to have a written agreement between the two of you because, you know, you know what I'm saying? So then the guy was all codependent, didn't want to kick the guy out. 
right? He wanted me to fucking take over and intervene and make the guy go to treatment and all this stuff. And I said, you know, fucking, I, I can't deal with that. It's not, we already Good. talked about this. I told you not to move in together. You moved in together. He used, you have a contract. He can't live there anymore. End of story. Grow and up. The guy's like, Boundaries. No, no, come on, Bob. You love him. And I go, I love him. That doesn't mean that it was a good idea to move in together. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a contract and we three sat down and talked about it for fucking hours, right? Mm -hmm. So the guy doesn't kick him out. The guy then gets arrested for heroin. The guy goes and bails him out. All right. That's some serious codependency. Right? So yeah. anyways, that all this fun stuff. And <clears throat> for the most part, like... All those people that went there are doing all right. Some of them stayed sober this whole time. I, I don't mind saying Janice Dickinson was on a podcast with me a couple months ago. Been sober the whole time since Excellent. 2011. Um, so it was fun, but it was chaotic. But if I would have taken insurance, oh my God. Think about that. Yeah, if I would have bought Bitcoin. When it was there were 99 cents a piece, I would have, I would be rich without the I, work. <laughs> somebody offered me to buy me, the, get in on Bitcoin when it was $630. And I was like, that's a terrible idea. I was like, I don't even have $630. How does that work? Right. Can you imagine if I bought even one? Well, yeah, they went up to like 19,000, but they came 12, Yeah, 12. Yeah. But $600 investment three years ago to have $12,000 is not bad. I would have sold at 18. I, a friend of mine has. I so. probably would have sold at 1000 <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Oh, my God, I got 400 and then, bucks. And then you'd be going, imagine I if I'd have held on to those. <laughs> I, so, I, you know, I don't mind saying I'm a really good drug counselor. I'm a really horrible businessman. I just heard it. Yep, there it is. <laughs> You would have totally jumped out. Ooh, it went to six fifty. I made fifty bucks. I'm getting out of this shit. <laughs> Suckers. And I was just talking to Heidi Fleiss, who actually is funny. So she she's not the one that wanted me to get in on it, but she got in on it, it was in the nine hundreds. She's made four million dollars off it. Good for her. She can move out of that trailer in the desert. No, she's still there. I talked to her. I'm going out to visit her. I love her. I've known, see, I've known her before the madam stuff. A lot I, of people don't know uh, that. No, 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 I didn't, but I, I watched that, the Madam of Crystal Springs, where she tried, there was a thing on She's Netflix or something. It. She's still Is that doing what that it. is? And it was just, it, I was, I felt bad because she's out there with all these birds. She likes it. And it was just like, oh man, and it's just like the same way I feel like about Jeanette being out in um, Joshua Tree. You know, but I guess she likes being out there in the desert too. Yeah, people, the, the desert is for certain people. I like going out there. I don't like staying out there. No, I, and at certain times of year, I absolutely love it. My kid lived out in Twenty Nine Palms and Yucca Yucca Valley. Yucca, yeah. Yucca well, there's Yucca Valley. Yucca, Yucca Mesa. Mesa. I yeah. lived in Yucca Mesa. Yeah, over by Pioneer Town. Yeah, and then also, and then he ended up Pipes in, Canyon Road. It was. Um, I lived on Pipes Canyon Road. It was interesting. But I just went out there on the weekends. But then I started trying to live there, and it was so boring. I, you know, I don't know what those people do out there. I, I can't. Just the extreme, the extreme heat just is is just way too so, much. So, so. Anyways, the 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 point is the, the of this podcast is if you have <laughs> no, I'm telling yeah. young people if you have a genetic predisposition to addiction. You are not going to get out of it unless you make a, a decision to achieve something in your life. You're not going to get out of it by healing your inter, inner child. That is not going to do it. And the rehabs want you to sit around and heal your inner child because they have paid for you that. But you're going to have to come up with, like, whatever it is. Like a friend of mine, I'll tell you, I've had success with millennials. I just realized it. This kid <laughs> at Hollywood Recovery, I was arguing with him. The dad was an old acquaintance of mine. He's, he was just, he was a difficult, funny, intelligent asshole. And wrapping right? it up with the story. Yeah, so, so... I just battled with him and he'd relapse and the dad would call me and come round and round and round for like a year. And then um, and then I didn't see him for a long time. And I'm in Laurel Canyon taking groceries out of the car one day and this big beamer comes, you know the big fat ones that look like a, like a <laughs> Escalade or something? <laughs> pulls up and goes bob and spins around in the in the in the street and parks 
And he gets out, and it's the kid, right? He's, he was like 20 when I met him. Now he's like 24 or something. I go, dude, what's going on? And he comes up, and he hugs me, and I looked at him, and I was like, oh, my God, you're sober. And he says, yeah, 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 I ended up in jail, and then I went to cry help, and blah, blah. And I was like, oh, my God. And, and, I, and so then we were talking, and he met Elvis and whatever. And, and, uh, and I go, is that your dad's car? Because dad's a banker, like business guy. I go, is that your dad's car? You living with your dad? You guys getting along? And he goes, no, no, no. We're, we're getting along kind of. He goes, that's my car. And I go, fuck you. How do you get a car? Are you dealing weed? That's what I said. <laughs> right? And he goes, no, no, no. And he showed, and he had this grill, the wrapper grill. He had one. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, I, you know, because all my connections in South Central from getting dope all the time, I realized all the kids on the West Side want grills, like, you know, so I started a grill company. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, good for him. Everyone within the sound of my voice, every millennial who's in rehab or going in and out of sober living in rehab, start a grill company. I just start a company, something, something yeah, you vape, like. Vape juice. <laughs> Invent a vape juice. <laughs> yep. You know, design a new electric bike. Do something. Get, in, get, get a dream. That's all I'm saying. Print something on a shirt. Don't care. Do something. Get a dream. Give, give your brain something to do. And this has been three, I've had three dreams in life. Become a good songwriter. I really wasn't, like, I like playing music, but it's a drag, kind of. But songwriting, I wanted to be the best songwriter in L.A. That was my goal from the time I was 22, right? Or better than my friends, right? And I always had Mike around to make me feel Mike fucking just, less Mike mad. Mike fucked it up. But, but, but I wanted to be a songwriter. And I wanted to be respected by other songwriters, right that's all that mattered to me from 1984 to 1991 that's all that fucking matters was songs right okay then getting sober right it's all that mattered to me from 1993 to 1996 when i did i want to be sober and i and that was my only goal i just i want to be sober right third goal was I want to be the best counselor like Buddy Arnold. I want to be a counselor that that ha makes people relax and feel not judged and 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 compassionate and funny and I just wanted to be like Buddy Arnold, right? And this last stage, this I'm in the middle of the fourth one. I don't know whether it's working or not. Some some days I feel like I'm get I'm going in the right direction. Other days I'm like I'm a complete failure at this and that is parenting. I think you're doing all right. Right? Yeah. So, so everybody has goals in life. It was to be a good songwriter. Then it was to be sober. Then it was to be a good counselor. Now it's to be a good parent. Those are goals. When you, the, the, people have to set goals in life of what they want to achieve in life. It can be interpersonal, parenting. It can be, it can be economics like be a good counselor know how rehab works and that led to a whole different many different angles of that right well yeah even being financially self-sufficient is a goal that's good that most people don't realize how good it makes them feel to be able to take care of themselves yeah a lot of the youngsters when they're able to do that they feel really good and it changes a whole lot but set anyway. a goal set some goals i mean some goals are existential like being a good songwriter i just remember one, we were making an album, me and Mike and Pete and Dix and Rob, I think. Was Rob on Stormy Weather, Mike? Uh, yes. Okay. And we we're making it, and I remember I'd written the song My Boy, right? And I played it for John Doe, who was producing the record, and he's like, that is a fucking great song, Bob. John Doe said that to me. <laughs> In the studio. Remember the studio we used, Mike? Yes, we I did. Late at night with Sondra, this girl, playing it on piano, and I sang it to John, because he hadn't heard it when we were doing pre-production. And he just sat down in his chair and he said, that's a great song. We're going we're gonna to record that song. And I was like, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good, that's a really good song. I Done. did it. I did Take, it. Check that one off. Yep. Yeah. So set your goals. They can be, you know, kind of abstract. Like, I just know that the thing that I was looking for from 1984 happened that night in 1989. Yeah, we all have that song that we 
kind of can't surpass. You know, like Steve Earle was always telling me that he'll never write a better song than My Old Friend the Blues. You yeah. Know? When I first heard that song of My Old Friend the Blues, I thought it was an old, like, Johnny Cash song. That's how good it is. Hmm. Like, it's a friend of Mike's, this guy that I look up to, Steve Earle. He also has the other, the, uh, the other kind. I love that song. I'm, I'm the other, I'm the other kind. kind. Uh, there are those breaking bands. I'm the other kind. He's a fucking motherfucking songwriter, that's for sure. So there was, a, and to be accepted, like this nerdy guy with glasses from Orange County with a pimply face. I'm in there with John Dow, motherfuckers. <laughs> Set a goal, people. Set a goal, you little drug addicts, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> you little <laughs> drug addicts. <laughs>